Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to a very, very super special edition of the Eastern Border. I have some great news for you, and for this episode, we're also going back to the roots. To kind of a style our first episode, so to speak. But, um, first off, uh, I had some sad news, but then I decided I probably won't talk about them. Because I got awesome news. I'm going to Harvard, you guys. I was invited for a conference as a speaker to a sound education that's going to happen from 2nd to 3rd November in Harvard. Yeah. Yeah, this this crazy Latvian dude is going to speak at Harvard and give you a lecture. It's going to be crazy. I'm going to talk about uh talk about how the oral tradition literally saved my people. I'm going to throw about a lot of Soviet jokes and I'm going to meet Dan Carlin and in person. Crazy. So this is why I need your help. See, I, I took a loan to buy the tickets because they, um, they guaranteed me free entry and they invited me as a speaker, but, you know, science in modern day doesn't get a lot of budget and apparently they've spent it all on their, like, mainliners. You know, I'll be speaking on Saturday, the 3rd of November there to the general public. So, well, still, it's pretty damn cool to be invited to speak at Harvard for, for me especially, from Lavia, it's just crazy. Uh, also, uh, this episode is edited by Sam Davis from Inward Empire Podcast. He's also gonna be there, and we're gonna spend the 4th of November hanging around in Boston, so that's, that's also cool. But yeah, I took a loan to buy my plane tickets. They cost me $450, and as I've posted on my social media accounts, I need your help to pay this back. Because that's my goal, and anything over that shall go to my, you know, inner inner expenses while I'm in the U.S. But hey, that's thing that you know happens once once a lifetime for you. So consider this a fundraising episode. So if you can, it would be very nice if you'd go to my homepage, theeasternborder.lv, and clicked on that donate button. And if you're a Patreon, please, please, just you know, if you're thinking about leaving, stay for a month. That's really important at this moment. Uh, 
yeah, or or just you know write to us on Facebook and and please please support us because this is this is really great because I passed the visa waiver program for the United States. I had to answer questions whether or not I have Ebola or the plague or am I or am I not gonna commit acts of terrorism in the future, including genocide, by the way. So yeah, I'm coming to Harvard, you guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna read a lecture there, um, like short one, twenty minutes or so, but but still. Uh, it's going to be great, and you can visit me there. Just uh, check out Sound Education Conference. I'm going to be there. I've been posted as one of the speakers, and there's going to be a lot of people there also speaking, uh, both from Dark Myths and otherwise, who are like great and awesome guys, So uh, and ladies, obviously. This is going to be great. This this episode is also you know brought to you by also Sam Davis, who's going to be there as well, who is going to be my generous and kind and wise host uh, for the time being there. Uh, I'll be staying with him for two nights because I'll be there in the United States from 1st to 5th of November. I booked my tickets and stuff, but yeah, got this loan to pay back. But, um, but Sam's the editor for this episode because he's also going to be there and you'll hear, hear him in the mid-segment. But I just feel so amazing. I cannot describe how great this feels, how honored I am, how... um stunned I was when I got the invitation. I mean, there are just not so many Latvians that have ever spoken in Harvard in public about anything, and it's like, Harvard, man. And even, like, going to the States itself, it's a massive adventure for me. It's a, it's a 15-hour flight there, and a 15-hour flight back again, so I'll be experiencing a massive jet lag. But I'm sure it's going to be worth it, because, yeah, I booked the flights so that I'd have a whole day to spend in Boston, which would be the 4th of November. So, yeah, it's going to be great. And if you want to support me, please, please go to the easternborder.lv, our homepage, and click on that donate button and, and, you know, help us out. And thank you for everyone who has helped me out already, as I posted this on Twitter and Facebook. And just write to us and help us out here, because, hey, you'll, you'll get the chance to meet me in person there. And I'll bring a ton of Soviet souvenirs. It's gonna be amazing, cause I take it as you know, as the, as the one chance that I ha- like I have in life. It's it's something that I've really been working for, I suppose. I don't even know how to explain my feelings. I'm just so stunned. So yeah, I decided to do this like a fundraiser episode, cause Indiegogo and GoFundMe don't work here in Latvia. So I I need to make something like that. And for this, I chose you know. You know, the episode's old style, because with the Stalin series, I've been stuck with not talking with people too much. I've only talking with people and getting interviews in the political episodes. So this time, I actually went out and talked with the representatives of uh, kind of our art department of the Soviet Latvia. From people who worked at the theater in the opera, like the cultural side of the Soviet story. And I hope you'll enjoy this episode. I'll hope you'll enjoy whatever Sam throws in the middle, because go out and go and check out Sam Davis's Inward Empire. He's a great podcaster, my fellow uh, fellow Dark Myths member, and a great friend in general. And like, he's agreed to to have me for a couple of nights when I'll be there. The other two nights are are um, provided by the Harvard guys. So hey, everything's awesome. But yeah, I'm I hope I'm hoping you'll like this episode, because. For this one, I did it the very old-school style and went out and just gathered stories from people. Because our previous episodes lately have been grim and dark and quite, you know, serious. So here I just wanted to grab again the thing which which started all of this, which was the main goal of all this before I got deep into the Stalin series, which, which serve a purpose and are very necessary, but sometimes things get boring. 
at points. So, um, enjoy the stories of the Soviet theater and opera community. I hope you like this episode. And yeah, thank you to all the patrons. Thank you to people who donated already in PayPal. Again, please support us. And um, yeah, see you in Harvard and enjoy the episode. So, let us begin. So, like I said, I did really uh, spoke with a lot of people from the theater opera circles. As you might have heard from my previous episodes in the USSR, there was such a thing like a crazy, cunning exit from troubles due to bureaucracy. And this one, this is uh, how I like to begin the show with, uh, you know, have to slam the hard news first. The story begins in mid-70s, when some people from the Riga Choreography School were driving to Moscow for the new party congress. Well, they they had to drive there, because there was a tradition there to have this huge concert before each of these party congresses, and it was mandatory to have artists from literally every Soviet republic to demonstrate the quote-unquote unshakable friendship of peoples within the country. And as you probably could, or, you know, even more likely couldn't imagine, the preparations for such a concert, like this great concert for, um, you know, a congress, could last for a whole month. And I mean a literal month, and nobody cared that many of the participants were, like, actual kids from various corps and dance collectives and such, who technically had to go to school, but nobody cares about that when it comes to greeting Politburo members properly. So... Without a doubt, all the rehearsals went on for a ridiculous amount of time, and the kids from older grades decided, you know, as they do, to chill a bit. We didn't have Netflix back then, but we didn't have booze. So that's great. And at the one at one point, turns out that in the general rehearsal, the final one before the, like actually leaving for Moscow, turns out there's a KGB agent sent there to oversee things. Well, because obviously... And he spots one of the 12th graders drinking a bottle of beer in the corner of the stadium where they were, like, practicing, because that's, hey, Riga School of Choreography. I mean, we have these very specialized high schools, like, with, with extra classes for choreography, extra classes for maths, you know, stuff like that. So, obviously, a report was filed. And there, I have to quote the principal of Riga Choreography School at the time, which, uh, in utter disgust, declared to the person who told me the story that, quote, <clears throat> Well, Ivars, for such a fucking mess, you're guaranteed not to finish school this year. Obviously, the news about this spread quickly around the school, and the principal also reminded, the, reminded this to, to our friend often. And she, according to him, stated, quote, Okay, you'll probably pass math and history tests, but in the final essay, you're definitely getting a one. Which is the Soviet equivalent of a fail, because, you know, we used the five-grade system back then, with one being the lowest. And now, a tangent on how finishing school worked back then. You see, as in every country, schools had centralized final exams, and one of those exams was a mandatory essay. But, back in the day, you'd get two grades for this essay. One for pure grammar errors, spelling and such, and the other one was for content. And that content grade was the one where all the kids of the dissidents or so-called disloyal elements could be punished. Because as you can understand, they could easily find any reason why to fail you. Oh, and if you failed this essay, you couldn't graduate and had to retake the whole year again. This is what my source Ayavars was facing at the time. But, you know, 
Happiness, after all, is mandatory. And although everyone around him looked at him like a pariah, basically, and were worried extremely, including his parents, he reports that he was totally chill at the time and hanged out at the school, you know, being quite happy. So, once the time to write the essay actually arrived, he literally wrote a single sentence for the whole thing and got a passing grade. Which was, by the way, a 3 at the time out of 5, and he actually graduated. See, traditionally, there were three subjects given for the essay each year, of which you would pick one and write about that one. So, two of those were usually discussions of some literary works, analysis or some such, and the third one was the so-called free subject, which was kind of random each year. And that year, this final free subject was, quote, the person that is my idol. The sentence, Ivars, who is my source here, who is now a quite famous ballet dancer here in Latvia, mind you. Uh, sentence Ivars wrote, obviously picking the third subject was, quote, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm translating this uh, straight from Latvian, so it might sound like it's multiple sentences, but due to how Latvian works, it's actually a single sentence, so, so keep with me, please, guys. Quote, My idol, the person whom I most respect and whom I would like to imitate the most, even if I could never succeed at that fully, which is the ideal that I desire to impersonate, whose thoughts I use as the basis in every difficult moment of my life, is our first secretary of the party, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev. Slow clap here, obviously. And yeah, you see, the reason why you can't fail someone for this is actually pretty simple. If you do, then as a teacher... You can be sure that the angry parents could easily go to the closest party committee, or worse, your friendly local neighborhood KGB station, and report that, look, this school, this school has an anti-Soviet sentiment, they put failing grades to kids who praise Brezhnev. Yeah, and that, that could, like, really get you into much more trouble than, you know, just having to redo a school year. But yeah. This episode is going to be all about artists, and I've gathered their stories, because I saved them up for a special episode, and hey, as I'm going to Harvard, it's the right time for that, because I really want to do an episode just for, you know, people's studies about real life there, so hope you like it. Anyhow, here's another study from a smaller concert, which was dedicated to the October Revolution in the Riga Opera House. Obviously, a day before the concert, some nice, happy men arrived and literally checked every nook and cranny. After all, the local party leadership was, you know, obviously expected to arrive. Even during the concert, there always were armed men following the singers, orchestra, and literally every artist ever, or and staff member too, to everywhere, including the bathrooms. The bathroom thing had started, by the way, uh, because in one of the previous concerts... Like, you know, my fellow contacts tell me, one of the things had gotten clogged, and water had started to spill on the floor, and that apparently was interpreted by the Communist Party authorities as an assassination attempt, by drowning on August Voss, who at the time was chairman of her higher council. See, paranoia was very real. This also included a direct order from a checking KGB officer, which literally ordered to remove three of the horizontal metal poles above the stage to which the decorations and, and you know, and other stuff are tied to. Because, you know, during the mandatory speech of by our beloved local party head, some crazy terrorist, or worse, nationalist, could cut one of those loose and try to assassinate Voss. Obviously, a deed only capitalists would do. But, you know, by this point he could read his uh, mandatory speech in safety. 
And here, here I have to explain some things about those speeches. They were more like extended crazy political essays. These speeches, which were mandated for various important events, such as the Cobra Revolution and stuff like that, they usually lasted for about an hour and a half, and were a total nightmare. As they were basically an accounting report about every little thing that had happened in the Soviet Republic, given Soviet Republic during this year. Every little thing. Now, obviously, most of the achievements were just imaginary, but still, each coal hose that overdid its plan, all the stahan of its farmhands, all the factory workers who were reported to doing well that year, yeah, all the achievement of the Latvian SSR fishing industry, including how many tons of what specific fish were caught that year, all of this. It's kind of like the United States State of the Union address, I think, well, as far as I've heard them, except if, you know, if it would be done by a bored, extremely crooked accountant, who's also been given some report about numbers and has been told that it's the truth, and, you know, probably is on drugs or, or, you know, just drunk enough or something. It was the most boring thing ever, but it was mandatory, because of the Soviet obsession with numbers and bureaucracy and how everything should be done according to paperwork. But let's go back to the action. So, all the metal poles have been removed and August Voss has read his massive speech with massive applause and it's a small break where the curtain must close. So the stage workers could remove the podium and the concert could actually start, you know, but, uh, but there's a small problem with this, obviously. So the responsible stage worker for closing the curtains had missed this somehow and so the curtain remained open for about three minutes. And it was a pretty awkward pause in the whole scenario. And although this might seem just like a minor glitch and a completely unimportant thing, it wasn't seen as such by the KGB and the party authorities. Because of the mood at the time and their general paranoia and, you know, general mistrust, because, you know, we in the Baltics were known to be not extremely happy about, you know, being inside the whole USSR thing. So they were actively looking for sabotage everywhere. Logically, that in the very next morning, the guy who was responsible for pulling the curtain was called in when the heads of the opera got yelled at as usual and had to give a written explanation about why the curtain hadn't been properly closed. This written explanation is among the legends of our natural opera staff uh, to this day, by the way. The explanation was as following, quote, I apologize for not moving the curtain. This event happened because I was so deeply moved and emotionally struck by the genius speech of Comrade Voss that at the moment I had gone into deep introspection about what I, personally, could do to strengthen the Soviet power in the Latvian SSR and what my role would be in building a brighter future for the proletariat. End quote. Yeah, he wasn't fired. But the fun part is, this is not the end of the story. The explanation was then sent to the party central committee to explain the incident. Now, not that they were completely dumb there, you know, but they had to follow the official bureaucracy, because Soviets were obsessed with that, even they knew that people were doing things just because of this bureaucracy. So, the director of the opera got into trouble for this as well, and was ordered to basically invent some legal reason to punish the stage worker somehow. But, you know, not being a mean person himself, the director called in the poor sod the next day and told him to write a personal explanation to him, stating that, come on, we, we all know you were just, you know, drunk. And I don't blame you, I mean, who wasn't? But simply, I have to invent something here and then I'll just slap ten rubles fine and everyone goes home happy, so write everything as it is really and do not lie. 
So obviously, in the next report, the curtain guy, who by this point is, well, so to say, tipsy on the job again, apologizes, declares that he might have partaken in some mild consumption of alcohol during the during the speech, and again, who hadn't, and signs the document. But the director reads the whole thing and asks, Hey, 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 don't you think you, you missed something there? Uh, and it was like, the response is, well, no, no not really, what? And <clears throat> how about a promise that you will never do this again? There's the curtain guy in his boozed upstate politely declares that, you know, he can't do that as, quote, you know, comrade director, you told me not to lie, so I kind of, you know, awfully don't want to. He got his 10 ruble fine. For honesty. But you know, although I have gathered these stories from the folks in the Stage Artist Society, they're not completely representative of the whole idea. It's important to note that obviously not everyone was so utterly cynical and magnus with power. The majority in the Baltics certainly were, but not so in Russia. And even here, there were those who actually believed in the workers' paradise idea and had completely bought into the Soviet propaganda. As an example of this, here's a report of a conversation that happened in Moscow in 1963, where the American playwright Edward Albee was visiting at the time, and he got approached by a student of the Moscow Literary Institute. At this point, Albee's most iconic play, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and, like, really, it's a great play. I'm a fan of theater, so, you know, so I got the contacts, but hey. Anyways, this play had already started playing in Broadway. Please, if you can, and if it's played anywhere, go see it, or just watch some tapes or whatever. But yeah, he was visiting the Soviet Union as part of the Kennedy Culture Program. He was a representative there. And this was um, this was the point of a short-lived thaw, including Khrushchev's visit to the States uh, and some such. So, this is a meeting dedicated to discussion about modern dramaturgy. His opponent in this mighty discussion about, about how to write plays better was uh, this Soviet student, and he didn't exactly care about Olby's achievements or his plays or anything of that sort. You see, for him it was obvious that he was an American imperialist, thus he had to be attacked on ideological grounds. And as there's no point of doing an actual retelling of this, because of the utter Soviet absurdism will just get lost, so I'm gonna have to quote it in full here. By the way, this dialogue is uh, preserved because of a Latvian actress, Dats Evers, who also participated in this meeting, and as she declared, quote, the idiocy of communism of this conversation had scarred me for life, end quote. So here's a full transcript of this discussion between Olby and this one student guy, who, by the way, had neither read nor seen any of his plays, but that did not stop him from arguing for the complete and total victory of the Soviet worldview. The meeting where this happened, by the way, again, reminding you, was dedicated to modern dramaturgy as part of this cultural exchange program. Student has Mr. Olby read such a philosophically significant and massively important text to the whole humanity as the Communist Manifesto? Olby. Yes, I think I finished it about two years ago. The student. But have you seen the plays of Lyubova Yarovaya and Optimistic Tragedy? By the way, this is my comment. Those are god-awful pseudo-art thingies which were created as the mandatory tribute to glorify the party. Olby answers. Well, they don't show those in the U.S. theaters. 
student. How? You also haven't read these plays and don't know Russian dramaturgy? Olby. I've actually read quite a lot of Chekhov. Student. Bah. Chekhov. How can you even write plays if you don't even know the classics? Again, he's talking about the previously mentioned political crap, and uh, he's being really serious about this. Olby. Small laugh. Well, I personally think that I got a decent enough knowledge about dramaturgy from, like, Sophocle to Genot, my, my favorites are Becca to Neil and, and Tennessee Williams, so, you know. Student. Oh, yeah, but they're Americans. Maybe you have at least read the Kremlin's Kurants. Which, uh, by the way, was another Soviet play about Lenin. Uh, those were made at least three per day. Holby. It seems like I might have heard something about that one. Student. No. Without Soviet dramaturgy, without the most progressive dramaturgy of the modern era, no culture can be great. How can penmanship develop if one does not know the most important works of the socialist realism? In the method of socialist realism isn't studied, then you cannot do anything. What's your attitude towards this movement, by the way? Albi. To be honest, I sincerely don't understand what the socialist realism really is. If I understand correctly, I have gotten lucky and I'm talking with an expert here, so I'll be glad to learn more. Could you please give me a clear description about the situation? Student. Well, that's not hard at all. Socialism allows one to criticize the backwards bourgeoisie exploitative inequality. Olby. Is that the critical realism? Student. No, no. Socialistic realism not only criticizes, but also praises the revolutionary romanticism and the dreams for a brighter future. Olby. Well then, it must be romanticism then. Now, I'd like to ask you something. Are there any limitations in the socialistic realism, and what would be your attitude towards them? Student. I haven't thought about this. Olby. Well, why don't you think? Student. No, 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 no. I do think. There are no limits. Over here in the USSR, everyone is allowed to think. Olby. So the method of socialistic realism allows an artist to use any forms necessary. Student. Yes, of course. In the Soviet Union, nobody is prohibited from doing anything. Olby. But if everything's permitted, then what in the end actually is socialistic realism? Student. That can't be easily stated in an instant, but in reality everything is very clear and simple. Socialism, like every huge thing, is simple in its essence. Olby. Uh, is it primitive? Student. Obviously, yes, primitive. But also extremely large and beautiful, thus very hard to explain. Olby. Thank you, you explained it to me clearly. Student, you're welcome. Not like it was hard or anything. Albi, although I think that you approach these huge complex questions in a bit of a primitive way. End quote completely. So after this sentence, this final thing, this uh, so-called knight of the socialistic realism had depleted his moral reserves and, you know, had to step back. But, you know, he, the, the nickname Realist stuck for the rest of his studies. Obviously, though, the real loser here was Olby, because I don't think he actually managed to find out what socialistic realism actually was. But I don't think even people living in the Soviet Union really knew about what it was or what the people running it actually, you know, thought about. So like I said, it's important to talk about how one could actually become a director of a large art facility, like a theater or the opera. 
this point I'm talking about the opera, though. You know, the guy who actually approves of these toss realism plays and stuff. Sometimes, these processes were outright bizarre and seemingly incomprehensible to our modern sensibilities, if you think about them. And this, the following, is one of the most widely known and shared tales in the Latvian theatre community. This is a story about how Valdis Ruja, who was a poet and still alive though, became the director of our Latvian national opera. Well, back in the day, it was called the Latvian SSR, awarded with the Warc Red Flag Order Theatre of Ballet and Opera, but it's a tank lengthy, so I'm not gonna use that one. Anyhow, Komrad Ruja was the director of the opera from 1965 to 1967. And yeah, like I said, he's still alive, by the way, and uh, working, like writing poetry, and he's a pretty decent poet, actually, so uh, he's received quite a few awards. Now, back in the day, in the time that we're speaking about, which is early 1965, he had fallen out of the party, obviously, because he wasn't a huge Soviet sympathizer or anything. His works weren't published. The reason being that the party officials from the Central Committee stated that his poems contained too much descriptions of love and Latvian nature, but clearly not enough about the victories of the Soviet socialistic work. So, you know, one day he arrives at the cafe of the Soviet officer's house, which previously had been and now has been restored to be the Riga Latvian Society building. Yeah, that that thing that had been started in the 19th century as the basis of our national awakening at the time, and now they're organizing various folkloristic and traditional Latvian culture events and such, but it's still going on, basically. Anyhow, when the Soviets arrived, the army took over, and the building in the very center of Frega, in old, the old town, was basically converted for a club for the Soviet army officers. The cafe was on the first floor, and it was pretty open for the public at the time, because, well... Obviously, they also had a plan to fulfill about how much drinks they serve, paid drinks, by rubles, and not like the officers ever bought anything, they were just, you know, supplied for free, which, again, makes sense in the Soviet system. So, Komrad Ruja drinks his coffee with black balsam, as usual, and I'm gonna bring that one to Harvard, because they sell it in our airports, and I'm pretty sure I can bring that in to play if I really want to. So, the guy is exiting the cafe, and the cafe is located in, inside the house, the, the whole building thing, and the exit led to the foyer, which is a pretty large hall leading to the upper floors, other facilities, wardrobes, and such like. And Ruya, while walking through there, being a bit tipsy, literally bumps in the utterly devastatingly drunk, to the point of no return, Marshal of the Soviet Union, Ivan Bagramyan. He was the guy, by the way, who actually wrote the thesis about the Soviet military strategy being an assault in depth in 1941, which was then read by Zhukov and presented to Stalin, then again Zhukov claimed credit for it, but yeah, I'll leave it to the World War II apps, because uh, my Stalin series are going to get more fun. By fun, I mean with many more deaths. Yeah. Anyhow, at the time, Bagramyan was the commander of the Baltic War District, and truthfully, through to be told, from all the commanders of the Baltic War District, he's being remembered here as a decent person, actually. Because being Armenian himself, this Bagramyan, he understood the problems that the minority nationalities had in the USSR, because uh, Russians were like 90% of everything, and he gave the orders, and this being the only time ever, by the way, that the political officers should actually treat the members of the local nationalities with decency and friendliness, and respect their local traditions. So, you know, Bagramyan, quite a nice guy, actually. But back to the end. 
So Ruya bumps into this guy. Of course, the marshal is accompanied by a swarm of generals and other officers of various ranks and a bunch of KGB agents as well. But Booz had created the idea in Bagramian's mind that he actually knows Ruya. And, you know, he just mistook him for someone else. And in Dragon Stupor, he hugs him and kisses him. That's a Soviet thing, okay? It's, it's cool. And he states, Oh my! Old war comrade, I haven't seen you in such a long time. How are you doing in life? So Ruya, in a bit of confusion, responds that, Oh, oh, well, it's not so good, but, you know, it could be better, but I'm moving on somehow. So Bagramian says, Well, yeah, I know you, you're just shy, you never think about yourself. If there are any problems, come to me, we'll help. And, you know, leaves utterly drunk in his Chaikalimo car, which was basically a clone of Lincoln. Yeah, that's also another story for another day, but still. And, you know, just his chauffeur just drives him away. So this just seems random and awkward, but in the next morning at about 8am, Ruya gets a call and is being ordered to arrive at the Latvian SSR Party Central Committee, where he gets called in in front of the members. And this institution, the Central Committee, was independent from the army one, which basically answers to Moscow. So the Baltic War District Commander Bagramian at this time, although technically in a completely independent power structure and technically in a lower rank, informally outranked the Central Committee members because of the straight to Moscow connection. And he was around about the same level as the General Secretary of the local higher council. Here it wasn't the General Secretary, it was called the First Secretary, but you know... Essentially, this means that uh, this Bagramian guy is one of the more powerful men in the whole region, not just our Latvian country. So the Central Committee basically states to Ruya, being afraid of their decision not to publish him, uh, that he's, you know, very shy and why he hadn't told him about his <clears throat> friends earlier. The literal, the literal statement is reported in this uh, so-called folktale of uh, the Latvian theatrical society as, quote, <clears throat> You know there was a slight misunderstanding about your book. We will publish it in a month. Where do you work right now? And our comrade, Valdis, being a true member of the Latvian Bohemian intelligence and, you know, being a poet at the time, responds that he doesn't really have a permanent job. And the response was killing. And three separate sources have actually confirmed this to be the truth, because this guy come, came over to them and... Uh, Basically, what the response was, but, quote, Well, we don't have any really good jobs right now, you know, but what you might, like, say, running the opera? So Ruya is a bit stunned and says that he should think this over. Twitchy gets a reply stating that, quote, Just don't think for too long, we've already started to do the paperwork. So right after the meeting, he went to his pals working in the opera from whom I got this story, and apparently that's a real legend, and actually happened here because he was the director of the opera for three years and everyone else just agreed that he should come over and run the whole thing because at least he was a local that actually knew something about art unlike the traditional bureaucrats from moscow that they sent over so according to the old guys from the opera his years were also the best ones in the whole soviet era and it all happened because of an utterly drunk soviet marshal who was bad at, like remembering faces i suppose A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. 
The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. But now, let's turn back to the hero of our earlier story, the General Secretary, the first Secretary, of the Latvian SSR, August Voss. He was the General Secretary from... uh, 15th of April 1966 to the 14th of April 1984. He was born in Siberia in a deported Latvian family, but even though he knew Latvian very well and could uh, could speak it fluently and without even an accent, he ever refused to ever speak in it as a matter of principle. Moscow, by the way, used to send such guys there as they were more loyal to the the regime and the ideology. As you know, they weren't shot, but their families had passed through the tests of loyalty to be considered trustworthy. Similar thing happened in other Soviet republics, so, you know, it's a nice tangent about how the system was technically run by the members of local nationalities. And this time, we are in the Dyla Theater. Dialect means beauty, I suppose, which was basically the second theater in Riga, second in importance, where more modern plays were played, while the classics and a lot of the propaganda stuff were played at the drama theater, which, by the way, now is our Latvian national theater. And yes, it was that before the Soviet years, which, uh, you know, that building is where our independence was proclaimed, by the way. So, uh, yeah, August Eduardovich Vos goes to the Dialect Theater. Truth to be told, that was a strange thing that I didn't really put up a plaque next to the theater about this event, as this was the only ever time when he arrived there. The story about this absurdly hilarious event comes from the brigadier of the technical theater staff at the time, Vilis Baris. So, and he says, and I'm going to quote him here, so all of the next chapter is going to be in quotes. Soon after the theater had moved to the newly built facilities, we, the technical workers, were doing some fixing works for the stage. And then suddenly some some unknown man in a gray suit runs in on us and starts yelling at us. Ukhajitye, ukhajitye, which is go away, go away. And yeah, I'm going to use Russian parts here uh, because it just, you know, I have to say it with a specific accent because otherwise I will not be able to relay the full meaning of the story. And I was told to use Russian by by Willis, so makes sense. Also, men in grey were a Latvian idiom for KGB guys in civil, as for some reason they only wore grey suits, so just saying. But carrying on, Willis continues. We just ignore him and continue to work. After a small moment, another man, also in grey suit, runs in two and waving his red KGB officer's card and yelling, Vam je which basically means, <clears throat> you were told already, fucking go away. Or go fuck yourselves away. Or something like that. Essentially, is a very hard thing to translate in English. I'm not trying to be actually extra rude here, but hey. And continuing from Willis, the guys left, but I got curious, so hid in a dark corner to take a peek and what would happen there. 
But after a moment, I see that August Eduardovich is coming in, in person, and besides him, in a supremely psychopathic way, almost kneeling, there go the director of the theater, Timushka, and his aide, Brezautskis. Brezautskis will come into play later, by the way. Obviously, some more important party people behind them, and a whole army of KGB guys in civil. Turns out that the guest has arrived to personally choose a place in the hall, as he suddenly decided to go to the theater. Which, by the way, was, again, sensational by itself, as Voss just didn't go to any cultural events whatsoever. So, both directors give an advice to choose the best option for both viewing and sound quality, which is in the middle of the seventh row. So, Voss slowly goes and sits down in the place that he was recommended. Four of the grey guys, the happy KGB people, quickly take positions in the row in front of him to ensure that he could see well over the heads of others. Then there's a pause. Then there's a silence. Then Voss starts to speak and coldly and harshly states, Ubrać! Or remove. And then this just confuses both directors and they ask in unison, Что ubrać, пожалуйста? Or what should we remove, please? Ubrać этот ряд! Remove this row, Voss declares, and with a wide gesture shows that the whole sixth row of chairs should get removed. This is the point where both directors get completely pale. 30 spots from the plan of necessity viewers gone, which would lead to the trouble with lesser bureaucracy because they don't care about Mr. Voss visiting. But that's not the main problem here. The problem is that as the new building of Vilas Theater at the time was a fully modern construction, built specifically to be a theater. So the directors politely but with extreme modesty stated that, quote, <clears throat> Comrade Voss, this, this, uh, m- m- might be a tad bit difficult. You see, the legs of the chairs are made from steel, and you see, Comrade Voss, they've also been put in place and embedded in literally concrete. They are, uh, part of the whole building and can't be moved easily. To which the entourage of Voss state, Ничего, тьерунда, можно спилить, or it's nothing, some foolery. This can be sawed off. And then Voss, like listening to this with an immovable, nondescript face, like completely cold, and with some disappointment in his eyes, declares with some pity, Пусть остановится. Не очень-то хотелось. So, let them stay. Not like I wanted this too much anyways. Then he slowly gets up and leaves with his entourage to basically never set foot again in the theater. Ever. So yeah, this this thing is just, just a small illustration on how the parliers actually treated culture in the Soviet Union and that all of this wasn't just, you know, a privileged thing. But to finish this off, while we still at the Dial Theater, another absurd and frankly quite abstract event must be mentioned that could only ever happen at the Soviet Union, due to the counting. The thing is that in 1977, moving to this new theater building, the common everyday stuff used in cleaning, maintenance, like, you know, swipes and pens and, you know, everyday maintenance tools, basically. The amount of them multiplied in droves. But at the time, Brezhnev's, who was leader there, published motto was enforced by the party. <clears throat> Quote, Economy has to be economical. 
which is a futile exercise in tautology, but hey, you have to at least pretend to be running a country after all. So a conversation happened. Lydia Berzinha, which was the head of the maintenance staff of the theater, reports the following. Quote, About a month after moving to the new facilities, Lydia was called the previously mentioned director's aide Brzauskis. And uh, Brzauskis tells her, <clears throat> quote, Look, Lydia, the acquisition department, which was, you know, how in socialist systems stuff worked. You had an acquisition department, which went to the state-owned storehouses and got stuff for whatever you needed, because everything was owned by the state, but that's a long story. Anyhow, the acquisition department is complaining that we're using too much toilet paper. Please do tell me how much we use per month on average. And Lydia, you know, looks up in her papers and, you know, just spews out some random ballpark number, whatever. Because this can't be serious. But Mr. Brzezowski, counting to himself and looking up how many technical staff and actors are there in the theater, makes some notes and says, uh, you know... All of this should be calculated and precisely determined, for the sake of clarity. Could you please give me a figure on how many of the square sheets are there in a row, and how much of them are needed to have a decent wipe? At that moment, Lydia got so stupefied that she just couldn't answer. And, you know, she just left Lydia's office, and, you know, but but she's... First, by this actor, Oswald Berzinj, who actually had come over for some makeup supplies, and he's been waiting there for a while, so he asks Lydia what she has been doing for so long, but still, in a confused state, she just replies that she couldn't calculate how and how many sheets are needed for each butt. Seriously. But, you know, this is pretty average for the Soviet citizen, so the reaction was quite okay. I mean, he basically declares, quote, Well, four for a normal person. Let's give five for the director, and, you know, six for the party guys. It is quite clear that the bigger the boss, the greater the ass. Which makes sense if you think about it. And then, you know, this has been fun, and I've actually gathered people's stories, because, and I'm shamelessly plugging my uh, web pages, PayPal donation button, because, hey, I have a loan to pay now, but I've been invited to Harvard, so again, I have to say thank you to those who have donated, but uh, this is my big chance of life, I think. And I'll meet Dan Carlin in person, and you can meet me too. It's going to be amazing in November. But I want to do something old school style. But then I dug up this thing, and it was amazing because it's about Christmas. And it's not funny at all, if you think about it. But honestly, it's one of the greatest stories I've actually heard from the opera. Because this has been fun, but there are nice things too. Like really nice things. Maybe a bit lyrical, even, showing that there are humanitarian values in every state of oppression and coercion. You see, as you all know by now, the USSR hated Christmas. They were treated with open hostility. The Christmas were declared to be hostile to communism. This went so far as to put extra meetings, lectures, or whatever in the evening of the 24th by the party members. And the fact that in the theaters in these evenings maximally long socialist realism plays glorifying the party were played, and that was considered to be the norm. In the opera in the Christmas evenings where the social realism wasn't so readily available, as, you know, they really didn't have that many operas, traditionally whether the Tchaikovsky's The Queen of Spades or Musgorsky's Boris Godunov were played. And those were the good options, because in the 50s, they actually ran those very few socialist, socialistic realism experiments of opera genre there, but those things were so bad that even the party members abandoned that idea. 
So, you know, so that you better get the meaning of this, I have to remind you that in the mid-70s, where most of these studies actually came from, for the public singing of Christmas songs, or literally any celebrating of Christmas, or even mentioning Christmas, you'd get fired instantly. Or worse. Sure, it wasn't Stalinist era, people weren't sent to gulags anymore, but still, your life could get ruined instantly, you could probably never get a job again. And the whole celebration had been driven, like, deeply underground. But despite that, or maybe even thanks to that, I suppose, at least in the Baltics here, everyone who had grabs against the Soviet power, and there were many of them, treated the celebration of Christmas as a political statement, and obviously being absolutely mandatory. So again, Latvian SSR opera, Christmas Eve. In the orchestra staff room, the candles that have been put there in some Christmas tree branches have died out already, because, you know, you sneak some in, because trickery. But the orchestra, five minutes before the beginning of the show, have gathered in the orchestra pit. You know, the one that's in front of the stage. According to tradition and just common practice, the orchestra needs to sink in. So the clarinet is giving a la sound. The violins are listening to that, and suddenly the leader of the first violins at the time, Leopold Sixna, he just silently starts playing Silent Night very quietly. And, you know, casually, without any afterthought, the rest of the violin joins in. And as soon as you know it, they're soon joined by the rest of the instrument groups. And then, one after another, the rulers in the hall are starting to just stand up from their chairs and silently but with confidence start forming an impromptu choir and singing along. This was a Christmas miracle for the opera that night. And the guy who told me this, by the way, burst into tears while talking, and he was one of those guys in the orchestra, so it must mean a lot to him. And this is a bigger deal than you might think, because... This is a quite well-known event that happened in Riga, but nothing happened. Neither from the KGB nor the party. Either the informers caught up to some Christmas spirit or just they didn't visit, but literally nothing. And this is how it goes. This is maybe some Back to the Roots show, but I think that this gathering of stories that I'm doing, well, maybe means something, and maybe I can, you know, tell the story of my people to someone. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, because I told you the stories of our artistic people. And please, if you can, do go to our homepage and donate. And see you in Harvard. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The eastern border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.